Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the water that then existed was though used with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up with fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord as is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, but that all should reach repentance. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you that in your grace you have come to us and that the longing, the desires of our hearts are fulfilled in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for his incarnation, that he came as a man to stand on our behalf before you. That he intercedes today on our behalf, understanding fully everything that we experience. And Lord, we've gathered from many different kinds of events this week. Some of us from times of rich blessing. In your grace, Lord, save us from loving your blessings more than loving you. Save us from the hardness of heart that can come from lives of ease and comfort. Lord, some have come having faced up to their sin. This week, seen it in a new light by your Spirit, come repenting and grieving over how we have fallen short of your glory. The Incarnation reminds us that there's hope for us when we sin. There's forgiveness through the work of Jesus on the cross. May we today know that forgiveness. There are some who come suffering physically, emotionally, suffering in relationships because of the sins of others. And Lord, in these times we're tempted to anger, to holding grudges, to bitterness. But you have come knowing what it's like to be sinned against. And you've taught us how to forgive. You've shown us how to forgive in your grace. Lord, may we release even those who sin against us because of your great love to us. Now as we turn to your word again, we ask that your spirit would shine into the depths of our hearts, would bring your truth to bear, would transform us, so that when we leave this place today, 
it would be with hearts of faith in you, hearts that love you more, and with the capacity to love our neighbor in new Christ-like ways. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to continue now our study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, we saw the qualities described for blessing. The qualities that Jesus says are those of the people who are truly the fortunate ones in the world. And they're the ones that we don't normally see as being qualities of blessing. The poor in spirit, those who are mourning, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Jesus says congratulations to those. The kingdom of the heavens belongs to them. And then he goes on to say that it's actually those people who possess those qualities in ever-increasing measure that are to be congratulated because they are the salt and light in the world. They're the ones that bring zest to the world. They're the ones that bring illumination into a world of darkness as Jesus himself has done. Now, they will suffer, but they are fortunate and highly privileged. And they are leading a new kind of life, not one that is guided and governed by law, but rather one that is guided and governed by Jesus himself and the kind of life that he gives, the kind of life that he brings. So not only are the restraints of law imposed on our flesh, but Jesus, by his miraculous work, births something new in our hearts. The law of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus. And now he comes to some very, very practical teachings regarding the basic practices. And if you'll excuse me for using the term, I'm going to use the term religion uh, a number of times today, because in its broadest sense, Christianity is a religion. There are many other religions as well. So it's actually much more than religion. It's a faith. It's a relationship with God. But I want to use the term for comparison's sake. And we have in this passage, Matthew 6, 1 through 18, we have three particular practices of religions mentioned very specifically. And you'll notice that they're not taught Jesus doesn't say, you ought to do these things. They're assumed. Jesus is simply assuming that the people to whom he's speaking, his disciples, they give to the poor, they pray, and they fast. He's just assuming that. He's not saying, you ought to give to the poor, you ought to pray, and you ought to fast. He doesn't say that. He just assumes they're doing that. Now I understand from some scholars that these, by many rabbis, in the first century Jewish world were considered to be the three pillars of Jewish faith. If you wanted to be a devout lover of God, these are the three things you did regularly. You gave to the poor, you prayed, and you fasted. Now it's interesting that these three are common to almost all religious practices to almost all religions. I'm not sure that you could find a single religion in the world that doesn't in some way 
call people to give to the poor, urge people to pray, teach people to pray, and fast. Those three are present in any religious system of the world. The Jews were very faithful. Islam, interesting enough, their five pillars has those three and then adds two more, uh, the reciting of creeds and pilgrimage to Mecca. I think I'm correct on that. So these are just assumed. What Jesus does, however, is radically disrupt how we go about those things. And as one Bible commentator said, he's not only guiding his followers in how to give to the poor, how to pray, how to fast, but he's also demolishing the Pharisaic temples that they had constructed in their giving to the poor, in their prayer, and in their fasting. He's demolishing those and is saying to his, his disciples, when you give to the poor, when you pray, when you fast, this is what I want you to pay attention to. And I'll be honest with you, in my preparation, again, I found it deeply unsettling. Deeply unsettling. And so this is the warning, this is the label, potential unsettling coming up. Okay? If you're not okay with being unsettled, uh, you may want to just exit now. I won't assume that you're exiting for that reason if you leave during the rest of the service, however. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, that's the introduction. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father 
who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. How many of us really know why we do what we do? And how often are you keenly aware of your deepest motivations for what you're doing? Particularly religious activities. Such as giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. What motivates that? What drives it? Our motivations, even to us, can be elusive. And sometimes it's not till long afterward that we say, well, what I did was probably okay, but the reason I did it was really pathetic. And sometimes our motivations are so mixed and confused and tangled, the good and the bad and the ugly and the nice, the noble and the petty, that we have a hard time sorting through it and truly understanding what's driving us. Nearly 30 years ago, actually it's over 30 years ago, I took on a fairly significant project. And our church had just left their old building had built a new school, and we were worshiping in the gym uh, because we hadn't didn't have the funds to build both a school and a church. So we were meeting in the gym, and it was a beautiful new school building that still needed some furniture. And so I offered to build a desk for the main office of the school. Seems fairly noble. Uh, except in hindsight, it's quite apparent that probably one of the reasons, and I still haven't really admitted this, but probably one of the reasons was there was a teacher in that school that I thought might be impressed by my woodworking skills. And how was I going to get my woodworking skills in front of that teacher? You know, I, I'm not sure that I even consciously thought of that. And I'm still not sure that was the motivation. I do know, however, she wasn't that terribly impressed with me. She was more impressed with the desk when I brought the desk. And that's just part of the story. Uh, the rest of the story remains untold. We have, we have these subtle motivations, these things that motivate us to do things. And on the surface, they're noble. Noble things, good things. But God asks the question, why? Why? Why are you doing that? Even the most noble religious activities of giving alms to the poor, of praying, and of fasting. And Jesus, in very simple language, says, don't be like these people who do these three things. Don't be like the hypocrites. And he uses that term hypocrites in all three situations. Don't be like the hypocrites. Okay, and who are the hypocrites? The hypocrites are actors. They give to the poor, they pray, and they fast. They do it as religious activity. Why? Apparently, Jesus says, so that other religious people around them see them 
giving to the poor, praying and fasting, and say, wow, they're faithful, devoted religious people. They give to the poor, they pray, and they fast. And Jesus is implying that they're not doing this for God. They're not doing this to please God. Their motivation is something else. It's to be seen by people. And this, this is, it's a really obvious thing, but it, sometimes it's hard to register in our heads that if I do something so that someone notices, when they notice, I got what I wanted, right? And then that's it. Now, why would you give to the poor? Okay, and, and again, in, in very simple language here, Jesus is saying you can give to the poor for basically two reasons. One, because you love God and you want to please God. And you know that God cares about the poor. And so you're going to be generous to the poor. The other could be is that, well, you have people around you who teach giving to the poor and social justice issues, and so you feel obligated to give to the poor so you don't look like a stingy, greedy capitalist, especially in our day. And so you give to the poor. And if that's why you give to the poor, you have to be sure that people find out, right? Because if they didn't find out, the very purpose for which you gave to the poor got missed. So you've got to give to the poor in such a way that people find out so they don't think you're some stuffy, greedy capitalist. So you have to find a strategic way of giving to the poor so that people see you're giving to the poor. And once you've given to the poor and people see that you're giving to the poor, ka-ching, you got what you wanted, right? Yep, and that's it. Same is true of praying, same is true of fasting. Now, here's the problem. And bear with me in this rather crass illustration. But you have, most of us have a, a poor, maybe not, let's say, let's say a poor friend. You know, he's got two, doesn't even have two nickels to rub together. He's just dirt poor. Most of us don't have Bill Gates as a friend. But let's just assume... Bill Gates is the other guy in the equation. And you have two audiences. And you can please one of the two audiences. You can please your dirt poor friend in such a way that he will reward you. Or you can do something that pleases Bill Gates, pleases him so incredibly that he rewards you. Who would you rather have rewarding you? Okay, whose wallet would you rather find and return? The poor friend, no credit card, his driver's license is expired, needs cash to help renew them, doesn't have any cash in his wallet, dirt broke. You know, he says, hey, thanks, bud. Bill Gates, you know, the, the sapphire, platinum cards, a uh, little pocket change, a couple of grand. You find it, you give it back. Bill Gates says, thank you. I really appreciate that. He has the capacity to reward you in ways that just go, wow! 
Now, for whom would you give alms, pray, and fast? To please people? Who, when they say, wow, he prays, he gives alms, he fasts, you've got what you've got. Or to please God. The author of all. The owner of all. The creator of all. The God of all grace. Now, it could almost imply a rather selfish motivation. Well, I'm going to work really hard to please God. Well, that's not a bad motivation. And Jesus plays on this very simple line. God rewards those who do their religious activities before him to please him. And I think we're probably also rather nervous in some sense talking about rewards and God rewarding us. It's all through scripture. God rewards his people. It's in this passage. You do it to please others. They are pleased. God doesn't reward you. You got what you wanted, right? You do it before God for the pleasure of God. God will reward you, he says. And what kind of rewards can God give? Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's this God. And so Jesus' call here in very simple language is to learn to live before the presence of one. To live before the presence of God. To give alms for the pleasure of God. To pray for the pleasure of God. To fast for the pleasure of God. Not because somebody might see and say, ooh, he's a good guy. He's religious. He's faithful. He's loyal. Wow, he's a devotee. When they do that, Jesus says, you got what you wanted. Congratulations. But I'm out. And he spells this out very specifically. When giving to the needy, he says, don't do it like this. Don't toot your own horn. And I think that's actually where that line comes from. Don't sound your trumpet. Don't blow your own whistle. Don't do it like that. The hypocrites do that. They blow their whistle when they give to the poor. And first century Jewish cultural studies are fascinating. Uh, they have some limited value. And I'm going to tell you one that is of limited value. But I think valuable. If you recall, back in the first century, um, not from being there, but from reading, hopefully, some history, they didn't have public water fountains that were nicely chilled and cooled. Plastic water bottles everywhere to buy for a buck just didn't exist. And yet on market days when the crowds would come out to shop at the market, under the hot blazing Palestinian sun, you needed water. And so there were watermen, people who carried water and people who sold water. And it was, you know, in our culture, probably looking back, their vessels were less desirable than our plastic water bottles, though they were at least biodegradable. So that has a, a check mark. They were goat skins. And if you can picture a goat just carefully skinned 
down to the knuckle of the knee and then sewed back together, you've got a great water bottle. You just tie the neck together into a spout, put a drawstring on it. The four legs, you crumple them together, hold them as a handle, drop that goatskin full of water right across your neck, hold the goatskin legs, the neck's hanging nicely off to the side here with the drawstring on it. And if you're a water boy, you carry that the 550 steps from the marketplace down to the pool, you fill up that bag, swing it up across your shoulders, 550 steps all the way back up to the marketplace outside the temple, and then you stand on the street corner and you shout, water for the thirsty, water for the thirsty, and you come up, you give them your nickel, you open the neck, take a good long drink, tie it shut, and you're refreshed. However, there was another way in which this was done. Someone wanting to serve the poor would come to a water carrier and say, listen, let me pay for that whole bag of water. And so he would pay the $2 for the whole bag of water. Would stand beside the water carrier. The water carrier would say, water for the thirsty. Come drink without money or without price. Free. Oh, here's free water. And all the Mennonites flock in. All the, all the people flock in. Free water. Don't have to pay for it. But what they would do is the man who bought the water would stand beside the guy dispensing the water. And you come up and you take your drink and you look at the man standing there who has paid for this water and they say, oh, noble benefactor, give her to the poor. May God bless you. Jesus says, if you're going to give water to the poor, pay the guy and go home. If you're standing there, the reason you're standing there is because you want people to know you paid and are giving to the poor. If it's about God and pleasing God, if you're giving to the poor because God loves the poor and you're to love your neighbor, go ahead and pay for the bag of water, but go home. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't blaster it all over. Don't announce it. Give freely and generously. People don't need to know that you gave. Now, I would also point out, it doesn't say they can't know. And I, I get frustrated by people who insist on being so secretive that they're a nuisance to church treasurers and uh, nonprofit organizations. That's a, that's a sort of pride as well. Okay, honestly. One can give to the pleasure of God or the pleasure of God without getting caught up in knots over how this is done. Don't toot your horn. Give generously. Don't, he says, let your left hand know what your right hand does. And again, this isn't about extreme secrecy. It's about a posture of generosity that says, hey, here's someone who needs something. And you reach into your pocket and you pull out what you've got and you generously give. You don't, first of all, say, oh, see, there's a 25, 50, 75, there's a dollar. Man, I want to get a Coke yet before I go home. So, ah, 
See, 50 cents. I think I can budget 50 cents to help this guy out. Yeah, I'm going to give him 50 cents. My plan is to help with 50 cents. I'll give you 50 cents. Jesus says that kind of that kind of scheming and calculating doesn't flow from a heart of generosity. Give to the poor. Give generously. Give without that kind of, of tight calculation and scheming. A heart of generosity in the way that God pours out His grace on you. Be a generous giver to the poor. Because God has given it to you, you can give it to others. Give freely, give generously. Whether people are watching or not, whether people find out how much you give or don't find out how much you give, give to the same measure. God rewards those who give for His pleasure. And God has the capacity to reward richly. And so when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. And it's interesting that some denominations, and maybe not so much some denominations as some segments of some denominations, have put away public prayer because obviously you're being seen by men if you pray in public. Well, Jesus prayed in public. He's not saying don't pray in public. He says pay attention to why you're praying in public. And I don't know if you've ever done this. This is a horrible confession, I suppose, for a pastor. But I have caught myself praying in public and thinking, I hope so-and-so heard that because they have told me they think X, Y, Z. We ought to do X, Y, Z for X, Y, Z. And, and I think what Jesus is saying if that's why you're praying the way you're praying, and they actually hear what you got, and most likely they didn't. You please them? Ka-ching, you got what you wanted, didn't you? You're not praying to God at all. You're engaged in the ritual of prayer to please people. Oh, and this is such a subtle, sneaky one. It just, just slides in there. And Jesus says, you need to repent of that. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues, in the street corners, and what's underneath, what's behind, what's the motivation is they're praying so that people hear them praying. And this is in a culture of set hour prayer. You pray certain times of the day. And so it was normal. And many parts of the world, again, this is normal. The clock chimes a certain time, you stop wherever you are and you pray. This is not speaking against set hour prayer. It's just saying, when you pray, you pray for the pleasure of God. Because God is the true center of your world, not people. And if you start dancing for the audience of many, you're going to be schizophrenic eventually. And you're going to be an absolute disaster trying to please people all the time. When you please them, you'll get what you want, right? Learn to live before the audience of one. Before the audience of God. And this is how you pray. He said, come before the Father as this audience of one. Address Him as the one who knows you. The one who knows exactly what you need even before you know you need something. That's who this God is. From before you ask, 
from before you have the need. Way back there, God already knows what it is that you need. But He still wants you to ask. He still wants you to talk to Him, to pray. So come and pray. And do it like this, He said, and He gives us the illustration. And of course, there's about three sermons content here. But in a very summary form, you're coming to God, your Father. And sometimes we play that one up. But the next line calls us to reverence. Hallowed be your name. Respect. Honor. He's our Father. But He's to be revered. He's the King. He's the sovereign ruler. And so we come acknowledging His sovereignty and inviting His rule in our lives, in our world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, whatever it is you want done, that's exactly what we want to happen here. Praying that before the Lord. Acknowledging our absolute dependence on Him. Lord, give us today the bread we need for today. This acknowledges that God can actually withhold the bread that we need for today. It's not entirely at our disposal. We work hard. But if God were to choose to not bless our work, it would be gone like a vapor. Do we acknowledge that in prayer, that God is king? And we say, give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us. As we live in the world, forgiving those who sin against us, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you set us free? That one's worth unpacking for a bit. We're going to fly over it. It doesn't say you have to forgive people or God won't forgive you. It almost says that, but it doesn't actually say that. It says, Lord, I want to live with this forgiving posture toward those who sin against me. And as I'm doing that, I recognize that I have a great debt before you. Lord, in your mercy, would you forgive? Would you forgive me? And Lord, there are so many things that are attracting my attention. So many flashing lights. So many possible detours. So many places I can go wrong. Lord, the world's just full of them. Would you lead me in a way that I don't go down those paths? Would you deliver me, Lord, from evil? Would you guard me from life's pitfalls? Jesus says, pray in that way. Pray like this. And then when you fast. And fasting is this interesting practice that seems to have largely slipped away from the modern church. And partly because maybe the church paid too much attention to it at times. But in the first century, the faithful fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The Pharisees fasted on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And in order to declare their fasting, uh, they didn't bathe in the morning. They didn't comb their hair. 
And so they would go out into the marketplace and they would put ashes on their face. And they looked pretty frumpy, looked pretty dour, bellies rumbling, standing on the street corner. Yeah, fasting. Religious faithful, faithfully fasting. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Interestingly enough, market days. No clues there, I'm sure. Fasting. Jesus says, don't fast that way. Rather, adopt the practices associated with celebration. So when someone was celebrating, you bathed. You took oil in your hair. Your hair would glisten. You bathed your face with oil. Your face would shine. You're celebrating. And you go out into the marketplace that way while abstaining from food. Living joyfully in the Lord before the presence of His people. Fasting in the presence of God. Anoint your head. Wash your face. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. God sees. God rewards. And I don't know of anybody who fasts that doesn't desire some blessing of God in the fast. We say, I'm willing, I'm willing to skip this food. Something that's very, very important to who I am and how I live in the world as a human. I'm willing to skip this because I want something greater from God. I long for something greater from God, whatever that is. And then to do it just for pleasing people is such an incredible poverty. The early church, rather than fasting on Tuesdays and Thursdays, of course moved the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday and fasting to Wednesdays and Fridays. And so in the early church documents, you find that it was encouraged that people fasted. And I think, uh, without going into it extensively, there is the place for corporate fasts. There's, the pla there's a good place for regular fasting. There's also an appropriate place for just fasting in the face of a specific need. Personal need, family need, corporate need. And I want to remind you that it's not necessarily commanded. Jesus doesn't tell us how often to do it. It's just assumed. It's just assumed that it's a part of the faithful Christian life, the faithful religious life. We fast. What is it about the giving of alms? Alms, the giving of alms says, I love my neighbor, so help me God. Prayer says, God, I love you. And I honor you as the one supreme Lord. And so the first one is the test of neighborly love. The second one is the test of love for God. This third one, fasting, is the test of who truly is Lord. Because you see, the unconverted self, you look at the pagan who doesn't believe in God, is primarily his life is primarily run by his appetites. They rule. What I see, what I touch, what I taste, what I feel, what I smell, our bodily appetites 
dominate our lives. Fasting says, while food is very important, it's essential to life, there's something that's more important, and that is God and his purposes for me. And Scripture talks about the flesh being at war with God. This is part of it. And when our God-given, even natural appetites become king, we see addictions and all kinds of brokenness. And you look at anyone whose life is a wreck, it's typically because one of the natural, even godly, good, healthy appetites has become dominant and now rules. And their lives represent the disorder of the self. And one of the ways we say to our bodies, to our appetites, probably the strongest single desire we have for food. We say, you're going to be okay, but you're not having lunch today. Because God is more important. I'm going to live before God today. And the belly is rumbling. And you're tempted to be grumpy and complain because you value food more than God. And it calls us to repentance and to live before the Lord, our true audience of one. The Lord has a way of graciously exposing our hearts. And maybe most poignantly so, in the good things that we do, when he shows us why we do them. So why did you come here today? Why did you come to worship God? Because of some, what someone might think if you didn't? Or did you come to please God? When you're all alone, what governs what you do? What you see, what you listen to, what you watch? Are you living before the audience of one? Or if the prying eyes of neighbors aren't watching, are you someone else? Remember, God is present. God sees. And this is not primarily about fear. And I've heard the, the, the presence of God utilized as a fear mechanism, and I think it rightly should be. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that if people learned to be conscious at all times that God is present, God is seeing, God is there, that would be the greatest uh, motivator to holiness that we've ever seen. Okay, so there's a fear component to that. Jesus says there's also a reward component. When you live before the presence of God for his pleasure, God rewards you. God blesses. Do you seek his blessing? Learn to live for his pleasure. And he will reward you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, 
your word says that you know the thoughts we think even before we think them. You know the things we need even before we're conscious that we need them. You know the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. And Lord, we confess that we're not that astute. We so often do things and don't reflect on why we might be doing them. And yet in your grace, through the faithfulness of your Son Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, you have ways of exposing these motivations. And sometimes it's when people praise us And we know our pride. Sometimes it's when people criticize us and then we become despondent. Both of these point as clues to who we're really living for. Father, would you teach us to live before you as the audience of one, to worship you first, to love you first and then to love our neighbor well. To allow your lordship to give shape to the very appetites of our bodies so they would be under your command and under your control for your pleasure. And then in your great grace, would you reward us with your favor, your mercy, and your wonderful salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.